Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I have achieved my, I get my gold star for the day. I have confused the world or maybe educated. I'm not quite sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome very much. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, we will talk about the most inspiring and um, um, exciting concepts like the GDP and productivity and other very exciting, I promise, things. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do our best to um, at least entertain, if not befuddle, confuse, and baffle you all. Because that is part of talking economics, is that we will do our best to educate, but that often leads to um, uh, other problems. Uh, I think a lot of ed- uh, economists wind up in dictatorships being sent to re-education camps. So maybe the education you get here will have to be re-educated out of you, but... Uh, that's part of our disclosure. This is an educational program, not a paid commercial uh, for our firm. Though we have a firm and we will plug it occasionally. We're not paying for this program. Uh, we're also not getting paid for the program. Uh, we uh, do pay for advertising, advertising for the program, but so does the studio, if you can say that's called paying. Uh, so there is no quid pro quo, Senator. We've only been doing a free program for 25 years years now 26 years 26 years wow and what do you get another day older definitely or 26 years older i'm not but sure not about the in debt. not no, no not if you've been listening to us uh so we are uh the personal wealth coach this is the program jeff and jake are the two hosts here we're both bald and bearded and love puns if that turns you off you may turn the channel um you could have done that without my permission too just as a heads up uh the uh, two of us are also the principals at a firm called the Personal Wealth Coach, which isn't coincidental. It's what we do for a living when we're not on the air. Uh, and that firm is registered with the SEC to give investment advice at the fiduciary level to people that are um, needing it. And we uh, we do that on our paid time. We can't do it on the air because on the air we have to maintain a degree of privacy and one size truly does not fit all when it comes to the investment world or the economics world. It's just the truth. You can't give a piece of advice that's good for everyone except for buy low, sell high, unless it's somebody that doesn't even want to get in the market. Then you just gave bad advice. So what are we doing instead of advice? We're giving education. So let's see. I think I hit all of the pieces that I was supposed to hit. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, one more. Just because the firm's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC likes us. They they are not. We're not implying that the government thinks that we're cool because that's not the government's job. And if the government says you're cool, it's almost by definition that you're not. Because what cool person wants the government to say you're cool? Well, I guess. Elvis Presley did, didn't he? I don't know. It's debatable whether he was cool at that point. And what I'm trying to say is that the SEC is not in the business of saying people are, are good. They are in the business of saying that people are bad. And so far, we haven't gotten that moniker. Uh, please knock on some dead trees. There, there, there you go. Okay. Uh, and you have your, your disclosure to give. This is the most important of all. Oh, 
It is. It is every week. Uh, yes, it is fantastical. Go ahead. Oh, boy. The information that we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. He says that over dinner conversations as well, just just to let you know. This isn't just on the radio. He says that, generally speaking, um, when when discussing um, the price of green beans. So that's that's important to know. I think everybody should give that disclosure more regularly. Ah, whether or not the deeming, this is the, the big thing, is that we all know people that deem their information to be accurate, um, and we don't deem them to be accurate. So we've just told you that our opinion is that we're saying things that, are, in our opinion, are correct. But you might have another opinion. <laughs> so that's a disclosure, too. Okay. Go ahead. So we have a question, and the question we have is the traditional one from Inquisitor John, who sends us a question every week. We really appreciate you, John. Thank you very much for this. Uh, you really tap into what people are thinking about and ask questions that we would never ask because we're too in it to know what people want to know about. And he's got an article in here from the Wall Street Journal called Higher Rates Not Just for Longer, Maybe Forever. He sometimes reads our minds and what we're planning on talking about. We've been talking mm -hmm. about this for months now but people people are starting to put it on front pages of newspapers now um he's got a section of that article circled the fed bought bonds under the financial after the financial crisis and again during the pandemic to push down non long-term interest rates it's now shedding those bond holdings okay so what is that the easiest way to think about this is to remember i'm going to use an example if you're at a bank and the bank is paying and, and it's an account that you use your it's your high yield savings account you don't have any of your bills associated with this account there's no auto payments going off to move this account is just simply to find a higher interest rate well what you have there whether you realize it or not is a loan to the bank the bank has agreed to pay you an interest rate on that loan that's what all bank deposits are your deposits at the bank are debts that the bank owe you. You're making a loan to the bank on a regular basis. You usually don't go through a long question process. You don't usually check their credit history. There's a bunch of stuff you don't do when giving a loan to a bank that they do to you, but you've got a loan to the bank. If that account, this hypothetical account that's getting 2% on your air quotes, high yield savings, and you look over and you say, hey, there's one over there for 4.5%. So you take that money away and you put it over in the 4.5% spot. Well, the bank that you just took the money out of wasn't just doing nothing with that money. It was probably loaned to somebody else. And they might have to sell a loan to give you your money to somebody else. And if you're leaving because the interest rate is low, nobody wants to buy a low interest rate loan. So they're going to give less for it. Okay. So when you leave a bank, it causes the bank to lose a little bit of money. Even though you didn't lose money in the transfer, they did. They're the ones that are holding the loans. If, if the Federal Reserve comes into, for instance, the mortgage market, which they did, and they said, we're going to give a whole bunch of money for people to loan out for houses. We're going to buy up a bunch of mortgages from, from companies that give mortgages. Well, what, did, what do companies that give mortgages do when they have money? Well, they, they give mortgages. 
that's what they do. That's how they make their money. So when the Federal Reserve comes out and says, we'll buy all those bonds that you have, those mortgages that you're still sitting on, we'll buy those from you. It puts a bunch of money in their hands, and then they turn around and make loans. However, when the Federal Reserve, instead of buying those from the mortgage companies and from the old grannies that bought it from the mortgage company and grandpas and grandkids and everybody else too. I sound like Jimmy Stewart, and savings and loan and all that stuff. But basically, these are houses people actually live in mostly. The Federal Reserve was saying, here's a bunch of extra money to make some loans. That causes there to be less competition for you when you're trying to get a mortgage. If there are 12 people trying to give you a mortgage because there's a lot of money available, the Federal Reserve is willing to buy up their mortgage immediately upon giving it to you. So you get 12 companies all competing for your mortgage, and they're all competing to give you the lowest possible interest rate. Now that dries up on the other end. If the Federal Reserve, instead of giving them money, they're selling mortgages on the market too, which means that the bank that gives you a mortgage, when they go to sell their mortgage to another bank, they've got to compete with the Fed. And the Fed's willing to take a little bit of a loss on their mortgages. So that causes interest rates to go up. There's less money in the mortgage market now because there's everybody's trying to sell and nobody's trying to buy. And the Federal Reserve right now is um, selling about $35 billion a month of mortgage-backed securities. They're selling about $60 billion a month of U.S. Treasuries. That's $95 billion a month that they're selling into the mortgage market. That means that they're competing on the selling side, not on the not if you're going out to to borrow a house. If there's to no a house, no, you know they're not borrowing a house. Yeah, yeah, to borrow on a house, you go out to borrow for a house. You want a mortgage, right? Okay, so you want to go out and and and, and get a loan. When there's lots of money in the mortgage market, you get 12 people competing or 12 companies competing for your loan. Now, you might get three and they're not competing very hard because they're like, you know, I could really do without your loan. I'll just go put this on deposit at the Federal Reserve if I've got money and I can make 5.4% on it. That's the rate right now. They can just drop it right there at the Federal Reserve and make 5.4%. And they're not taking a loss that you're not going to pay the mortgage. Or they could give you a 7.5% mortgage. That's a two-point spread, but they can say, all right, there's no risk by leaving it at the Fed. So they're not really all that interested in making you a loan. You better have really good credit. Well, what does that do? It keeps interest rates high. It's it's a loaner's market, not a borrower's market. And we had a borrower's market before. So that's what causes interest rates to go up and down. How much money's out there? If everybody's trying to, to loan money, interest rates have to be low because they're competing with each other. And you won't take a loan. If everybody wants to give you a loan, you're going to take the lowest interest rate. That's how it works. You don't take a higher interest rate out of the goodness of your heart. You don't go, well, this bank is offering me 2%, but that one over there is a 7%, and I like their logo. No, that, <laughs> that's not how you choose when you're buying a car or a house. Logos are irrelevant. We aren't that loyal when it comes to banking, except in our checking accounts where all of our bills are going off, and we think about the nightmare of trying to move that to another bank. Those are sticky, but that's also very low on the profitability realm for banks. So this is how supply and demand affects interest rates. People think this is counterintuitive on the loan side because the value of a loan goes down when the interest rates go up. But it's really not when you think 
whoa, if there's less money available to make loans, they're going to be more expensive. So when the values are down, it means there's less available and it means it's more expensive. And if you're the one making the loan, it hurts you the most. Now, on the other end of that, if you're borrowing at a low interest rate, as a lot of people have for their mortgage, and you got your loan at a time when the rates were really low, and now you're saying, I'm not getting out of this, you're benefiting greatly. It's also limiting your choices because you don't want to sell and go and buy a house at a higher interest rate. So that's kind of the weirdness there. We've got a whole bunch of other things that aren't as esoteric as the Fed balance sheet, but the Fed balance sheet, they have a lot of money, a lot of money in it. Um, at this point, they have a little over $8 trillion sitting on their balance sheet. What is that? That means that's all of the money that they loaned out is sitting there as stuff that's owed to them. So when they went and they bought up all those loans, they're loaning. That's what that is. When you buy a loan, it's the same as making the loan. The Federal Reserve, in essence, made a bunch of loans during the global financial crisis and then the pandemic. They made a ton of them because they wanted to save everybody. And they did it at low interest rates. And now they're selling those back into the market. And that is what's causing interest rates to go up. When they, borrow, when they came and said, we'll buy any loan, well, anybody competing against them had to go rock bottom on their interest rates or they weren't going to make any loans. And they could make money by just making the loan and then turning and selling it to somebody else, including the Fed. So as weird as that is, the chain makes sense when you stop thinking about the interest expense or the, uh, the principal value. You just say, if there's less money, it's more expensive. When there's more money, it's less expensive. It's supply and demand. And the expense in this case is interest. And that was my long-winded attempt to make a very complicated subject simple. I'm not sure if I did it. I probably confused, baffled, befuddled, and bewildered everyone listening there. Now, Congratulations. Thank you. I, I have achieved my, I get my gold star for the day. I have confused the world or maybe educated. I'm not quite sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome very much. All right. The, so, uh, go ahead. You, your turn. There are some things going on that I think are profound in the economy of the United States right now. Probably the biggest headline thing that you're likely to see in the next, I don't know, month or so, is the annualized GDP for the third quarter. Now, when this is announced, it's good to remember that the if, if it comes in at, let's say, 4%, that doesn't mean that we've had a 4% year-over-year growth in no. GDP. That just means that the that's the speed, if it continued for a year, that the economy will grow uh, w did grow in a given quarter. Man, and I wish this was simpler. I wish we could just say, yes, that means yearly or whatever, but that we, we have yeah. to have job security. We have to make this as confusing as possible in advance. There so we when, we, when, when we quote these numbers or when you see the numbers come out, it's an annualized number based on one quarter's data. The Atlanta Federal Reserve, each, each Federal Reserve Bank in the United States is tasked with specializing in something about the economy. And so sometimes we get stuff from the St. Louis Fed, sometimes from the New York Fed, sometimes from the Atlanta Fed. The Atlanta Fed is the uh, office in the Federal Reserve that is tasked with forecasting and monitoring the gross domestic product of the United States. And they generally do a pretty good job. They are saying, as of this point in September, actually the... the uh, they, they're going to update again on September 27th, but September 14th is when they uh, did this one. That the third quarter will come in, the quarter we're in now and almost finished with, will come in at a 4.9% 
growth in GDP, which is mind-boggling. That is amazingly high. The, the consensus among econ- economists is that the United States economy has the capability of growing at about 1.8% a year. And somebody, I, I had a very interesting discussion with a, with a retired physician about this who got very angry at me. So I hope I'm not making you angry. The United States economy cannot grow significantly faster than 1.8% a year for a long period of time. Hold on. I have to get angry. Okay. I'm yeah, done. You're, I'm okay. done. I'm good. Done. Are you over with it? That's yeah. Good. Uh, please please um, go ahead. Simply because we don't have the capacity to grow any faster. Yeah. And if you've driven I-35 recently, you understand about capacity. Uh, if you put, if let's say the economy grew 4% in a year and you try to put 4% more 18 wheelers on I-35, you wouldn't. Well, you, you could put them on there. They just all be parked. Right. The, this, nothing would happen. When we talk about capacity utilization at manufacturing level or on the highway or on the railroad tracks, we don't have logistical capabilities to grow faster than 1.8 for a long period of time. Now, if we had more roads, if we had better methods of shipping things around and more people to employ, that it would work. It would. But it, I mean, even if you think, well, let's say it's not actually shipping a physical product. That way you don't have to ship it on the rails. You don't have to put it on a ship. You don't have to put it on a truck. Okay, so all that stuff is irrelevant. It's all software, okay? We don't have enough programmers. So you can hire some, but you're going to have to pay for them at a higher rate because we don't have enough of them. So if you have a really good idea and your software is really worth it, you can do it. But if you have a pretty good idea, it's an idea that at other times would be profitable and would lead you to a pretty good business for a while. And somebody else is trying to do the 4% concept. Hey, we're going to grow big. Well, they're hiring your people out from underneath you and you can't do that. So it slows down the growth that's there that's not so volatile. The small company growth, the little ones that aren't trying to make 47 branches of their restaurant in the first year, they just want to serve some food that they learned how to cook in Germany. Uh, So that slows down growth when we're overgrowing long term. It breaks the system just like running your car at max speed eventually will break the system. Uh, Capacity utilization is there. So why 1.8% do you think? Because the guys at the Federal Reserve... Um, the guys and gals of the Federal Reserve did a very careful analysis. And they say, for example, and we use one very thin little example here. They look at a lot more things than this. If the economy grows faster than 1.8% a year, will I-35 be able to handle the traffic or will it become a bottleneck that prevents growth above 1.8%? And the answer is it will become a bottleneck. There are right. the, the lowest producing item in our infrastructure slows down the rest. We'll put the ceiling on what we can do. Now, the fact that we're going to get this 4% growth and or well, Moody's is saying 4% and they've they tend to be very accurate. They they're not always right, but they're pretty good shape. The the blue chip consensus of economists are saying 3% right now. But the Atlanta Fed who and and I have noticed that the folks at the Federal Reserve Bank seem to have more data sources than anybody else. Yeah. Everybody else goes to their data sources to figure out what's going on. Um they tend to be fairly accurate about this. And, and we've they're been, saying just the, 4.9%. The two of us repeatedly over the last 6 months have been pointing at things that any of us can look at as data points. How long do you have to wait at a restaurant during lunchtime or dinner time period almost any city you're in 
How long do you have to wait in traffic on your way to or from work? Those are things that generally aren't happening in a bad economy. It really, I mean, you don't go out to eat and wait to eat unless you have money to do it with. So, okay. And, and okay. That's I mean, it. Why? Here's the big <laughs> thing. A year ago and up to at least six months ago, economists all over were forecasting and a, that we would have a recession at this point. And instead of having a recession in the third quarter of 2023, we're having astonishingly high GDP gross domestic product growth in the United States. There's too many GBVs out there right now between chat and the, the growth of the United States economy. Anyway, um, GPT, so why is that happening? GDP, um, PPC. Yeah, let's just use three-letter acronyms that sound alike a lot, and it'll make us sound yeah. like we know what we're talking about. But don't forget the PMI. Yeah. Um, anyway, Or, or a U- uh, UTI. Oh, no. Well, let's let's a, take that out of the mix. There was a fascinating article in the wall street journal that's i dug into and the more i dug into it the uh it, the more fascinating it got the we're 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 having in effect an accelerating economy and a boom going on when we should be having a recession and uh, what what has changed what in the world has changed and here's the big one we have had a tremendous acceleration in legal immigrants working in the united states in the last two years why is that going to accelerate the GDP? GDP is generated, and this is this is something to hang on to. It's generated by the number of hours worked times the rise in productivity of those workers. Now, it's also got, in other words, if, yeah, if, if a given worker in the United States is putting out so much dollar value into the GDP for each hour that he or she works, as their productivity goes up, which it did, by the way, a bunch in the second quarter of the last data we have, um, you if you multiply one time the other, you get a 4.1% growth rate for GDP. Now, it's not that simple because there's other things that go into GDP. But the output rate is a, probably the biggest component in GDP, and it looks like it's going to be around 4.1% growth, which is pretty impressive. Um, yeah. But the reason it is going to hit that growth rate is because we came out of a critical labor shortage. And what happened is about 65,000 immigrants, now these are legal immigrants who got visas and came in the United States with intent to work, it's perfectly legal, um, are now working in the economy. When you add 65,000 people who already have skills, these are not people coming from some poverty-stricken place where they're going to have to start from zero. The, the, that 65,000 people, we j- so we have to take 65,000 people times the hourly output of the median worker in the United States times the rise in productivity, and you get a shot in the arm to the economy of the United States. Historically, that's the way we've done it. Um, let's see. So we, we've been talking about the Fed. There's some demographic funness here. You mentioned demographic and the GDP and, you know, uh, number of hours worked, productivity of those hours times the number of workers. This is part of the reason why China's GDP gets revised when they update their census data. Oh, we actually have more people, so therefore our economy grew faster than we thought it did. Um, This is part of the reason why when we look at GDP in places like China, that we're a little bit leery of the data. In the United States, it's a little bit more based on what's actually being produced than based on the number of people and how much they're producing per hour. But it's a component. Uh, So when we're looking around right now, 
there's a lot of people employed. We've got more people employed now than we did pre-pandemic. So that's important to know. And we're working more hours than usual and our productivity's up. So it shouldn't be that surprising that we're having growth in the economy. Uh, when it was predicted that we would have shrinkage in the economy, that we would have a recession. Now, we didn't see the recession. We certainly understand why people saw a recession coming. Uh, when we have an inverted yield curve, when it's more expensive to get a short-term loan than a long-term loan, that doesn't make any sense at all. But at the same, that, what, why would that cause the economy to slow down? Well, a small business that's expanding, that wants to add an extra office, buy another piece of equipment, hire some more people, a lot of times we'll do that using a loan from a bank of five years or less. And when those interest rates are the highest on the spectrum, they don't want to make the loan. So they don't buy the equipment or they don't do the hiring. or the, And that's the standard concept of why an inverted yield curve is bad because the long-term loans are cheaper than the short-term loans, but we don't want to get into a 30-year loan to hire somebody that might not be here next year. No, we don't want to do that. So that usually slows down the economy. But that happened to coincide this time with businesses and individuals, private citizens, having a record amount of cash sitting in the bank. So they didn't need the loans to hire the people. They got the loans two years ago during the pandemic, and they've been sitting on the cash. So they used it to buy the equipment or to hire the people anyway. So we didn't see a slowdown in hiring at the same time that the rates were going up. We didn't. And so when we see that, we, we say, all right, this doesn't make sense in the standard reason. The standard reason for why an inverted yield curve should cause a recession doesn't apply here because it's not looking at the fact that they don't need the loan to expand, where before any expansion required a loan, they now have enough cash, so they expanded. And the profits are coming in at a rate that is paying back that expansion. It's also part of the reason why banks have been in a bit of trouble lately, because people aren't making those short-term loans instead, or getting those short-term loans. Instead, they're spending the cash that was sitting at the bank to make the short-term loans, which is part of the reason why short-term loans became even more expensive. So it's like these weird effects that are going on that aren't usual because we had a lot of cash. And usually when we hit a rising interest rate environment, it's because there's not enough cash around. In this case, there's not enough cash around in the actual purchasing and buying of the bonds, not in the banks. There's plenty of cash in the banks. So th this, this is why we didn't see the recession coming. It's why we didn't expect a recession when so many people did. And we're just as proud of that as being able to say our names together, by the way. That's it's an important little piece of, of data that when we looked at the, the recession possibilities, uh, we never got above about a 40% expectation at any point in a 12-month period that's behind us when the rest of the world was saying, we're getting one for sure. So not that anybody cares because we're little, nobody's in the middle of the wilderness, but one more point for us on our own little hidden tally sheet yeah. that nobody else gets to see. Well, it, it really boils down to the fact that when we see the tea leaves, the nationally reported leading economic index by the way, the leading economic index uh, came out. We don't report on it much anymore, but it's still forecasting an imminent recession. Right. Uh, because one and, of its big components is the yield curve. 
And I love that indicator, by the way. The leading indicators are my favorite of the indicators, but they're still calling for a recession. So there's some stuff that needs to be updated there. Well, I went out and looked at the um, PMI. The S&P Global uh, came out with their purchasing managers index for the United States this week. And we mentioned it in the newsletter, but it's it's very significant. It has a very mixed message. Uh, the composite output index, which is the big number. That's, um, that's when you add the business and services and everything else together. That's yeah, the you composite. add everything in. Yeah. It's at 50.1. Now, 50 is the difference between growth and contraction. Below 50 Below is, 50 is contraction. contraction. Above 50 is growth. Yeah. It's at 50.1. The services index is at 50.2 and the manufacturing index at 49.7. Manufacturing has a much lower chunk of the GDP than services do because we in the United States provide more services than manufacturing. A lot of our manufactured goods, of course, are imported. Um, many of them, of course, from China. So that doesn't tell you a whole lot. You have to dig down, actually read the report from uh, S&P Global, and I did. And down in the lower areas, it really uh, became t- interesting because the sense is that the PMI, the purchasing managers, the people who buy stuff in advance of need, in other words, the management of a restaurant or a factory will tell their purchase managers, we need to pick up on our purchases of whatever because we need we anticipate more people coming in the door. Right. Or, or more repl- people buying stuff. Or us. replacing stuff that's breaking. All right. of those are big things for the future. And they basically give a sense of where they think things are. So it's not an exact science, but it's it's as close as we're ever likely to get when it comes to forecasts. It's and as, what, at least as accurate as history. What they are saying after they say no, for instance, manufacturing is saying that demand has fallen just a little bit, so we're buying just a little bit less stuff than we were before. Uh, which, by the way, has to be measured against where they were before, and where they were before was uh, in a boom coming out of the pandemic. So that distorts it in and of itself. But they're also saying that their leadership is telling them to be prepared for an increase in production within the year because they see it coming. And speaking of seeing it coming, the end of the hour is about to come in a hard break. And so we have to. The end ready to of the on. hour is upon us. We stand with our signs saying the end is, ne- is nigh. Uh, yes. So if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management, business advice, that sort of stuff to people generally high net worth. And uh, during the weekend, we have voicemail, but during the week, we have real live people, no, no phone tree. Um, and uh, you can reach us locally at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same number toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, read our newsletter. It comes out every Friday. Uh, you can uh, listen to radio programs going back a long ways. Check out our podcasts anywhere podcasts are. You can contact us through our contact form or email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. We actually read those things. Uh, and thank you very much for listening, presuming you did. If you didn't, then you can't hear me say nah, 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 nah. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.